First Timothy chapter 6 is our text this morning. Focusing on verse 6 of chapter 6 of 1 Timothy, we'll read uh, verses 3 through 7 and then um, unpack verse 6 together. Before we read God's holy word, let's bow in a word of prayer. The Father, by your grace, what we know not, teach us, what we have not, give us, and what we are not, make us. By the power of your Spirit, and for your Son's sake, amen. First Timothy chapter 6, beginning in verse 3, God's holy word, let us attend to its reading. If anyone teaches false doctrines and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, he is conceited and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. The grass withers, the flower fades. The word of our God endures forever. Amen. Things could be worse. Things could be worse. You probably have all heard people say this. Maybe uh, they're having a bad day trying to gain some perspective, well, things could be worse. Maybe you think this to yourself from time to time. And perhaps it is usually quite true, right, that things could be worse. But what I want to consider today, on a special day like today, and thinking about what is the proper posture as far as the Bible is concerned regarding Thanksgiving, what I would like to consider today is that while such a perspective, well, Things could be worse, so I might as well make the best of it. Uh, That can produce uh, some sort of contentment with where you are, with your lot in life. But it's actually not biblical contentment to say such a thing. Biblical contentment would indeed sound more like the phrase, no matter what your circumstances are, no matter what your, your lot in life, that you would say, I'm doing better than I deserve. I'm doing better than I deserve. It's not a matter of having an earthly perspective in regards to uh, seeing that others' lives are worse, that other people have it worse off. See, that's really an, an earthbound perspective. And you say, well, if I'm somewhere in the middle of the pack, I'm doing okay, so I should be content with my lot in life. Rather, it's not about that earthly perspective, it's about having a heavenly perspective that remembers the eternal inheritance that has been given to all of those who are in Christ. That's biblical contentment. That is Christian contentment that is shaped by the gospel. So that's what we're going to consider uh, this morning. Having a heavenly perspective that always remembers the eternal inheritance given to those who are in Christ and how that gives shape to our uh, contentment. So first, defining contentment. 
You might say that to be content is to be satisfied with what someone has. To be satisfied with what you have. Biblical contentment, we might take it a step further than that and say biblical contentment would be to be satisfied in God. To be satisfied in God and in Christ, no matter our circumstances in life. Simple definition, perhaps a simple idea, difficult to obtain. Difficult to obtain. In Philippians chapter 4, very famous passage, we learn the Apostle Paul told us he had to learn contentment. Beginning in verse 11, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That last piece of that passage quoted at times for various reasons that uh, Christ may help you score touchdowns or accomplish various things in life. Paul is speaking in this passage about contentment. I can learn by the strength of Christ, through the grace of Christ, to be content with whatever God has given to me. This is quite something for Paul to say. Earlier in his life, he was so discontent with the manner of things regarding Jesus Christ that he was killing and persecuting followers of Christ. So Paul really gives us this fascinating, real-life, real-time illustration of how satisfaction in Christ and contentment in Christ can really and truly transform someone's life, just as it did Paul's. We'll return to that a little bit later. It's uh, important to keep in mind, though, that contentment is something that must be learned. It's not natural. Particularly, it's not natural to our sinful flesh. You can go back to uh, the Garden of Eden. Adam thought that that his lot in life, he, he began to gain another perspective, tempted by the devil to see a different perspective, that perhaps his lot in life was not exactly what he had wanted. Interesting, perhaps, that... The one who was tempting him had felt the same thing, one of God's heavenly beings who was dissatisfied with his station and decided that he himself wanted to ascend to a place of higher honor than God had created him to have. We think about this in light of biblical contentment. Sinclair Ferguson says this about Christian contentment. The contented believer is one who believes that God's provision is always sufficient And his appointments are always appropriate. Only when we have faced both good and bad can we know that neither draws us away from the anchor of our contentment in Christ. This is something that we must seek in times of plenty and in times of want. That we might at all times, in all seasons, in all places, learn to be satisfied in God and in God alone. We need to train ourselves for this because of its place in virtue and godliness. First Timothy, uh, if, you, if you go through study First Timothy, it seems that Paul is very concerned in that book with godliness, with, with obtaining Christian virtue. He says this in First Timothy chapter 4, Train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also to come. He he exhorts us as believers to to be engaged in this exercise of attaining virtue and godliness. There's no inconsistency for Paul between being saved by grace through faith, through the grace of God alone, to the glory of God alone, 
And engaging in this exercise of training yourself for godliness. We should remind ourselves of Philippians chapter 2, where Paul is speaking there to his Philippian brothers and sisters in Christ. He says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. While the human perspective, what are we doing? What are we doing? We're engaging in this process of God granting to us godliness. That sounds like, like doublespeak, perhaps, to the unconverted or to the unsaved, but those who know the power of God, this makes perfect sense. This makes perfect sense. It, you think about it in terms of, of coming to faith in Christ at the start. What do we sing in our blue Psalter hymnal? I sought the Lord, but afterwards I knew it was him. It was he who was seeking me. I, I thought I had found you, but I found out later that you had found me. The same is true of our sanctification. We engage in this exercise towards virtue, but we know all of the time that it is God granting his grace, giving us strength by the power of the Holy Spirit. Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs said that contentment it could be thought of as the quiet of the soul, and that's an important thing to keep in mind. Some people may have a high tolerance for affliction and chaos. Things sort of come their way, and you think, how does that person stay so calm in the midst of, of all the things they're going through? Well, some people may have an outward appearance of contentment, but in their hearts, they have not learned to rest and to be satisfied in Christ. These are things that we must learn that only come about through the power and the grace of the Holy Spirit. So in 1 Timothy chapter 6, the verse that we are considering, godliness is a means of gain. Godliness with contentment is a means of great gain. Paul sets that over against worldly gain. Gaining money, gaining possessions. He says, ultimately, what is of much greater importance is godliness. And so he has these, these twin ideas, godliness and how contentment connects to that. And it seems he gives the idea, the, the virtue of contentment, really uh, a, a primary place in uh, the pursuit of virtue. Godliness really is a word that means uh, virtue Itself, And so he gives this primary place of importance of being satisfied with what we have. A couple of things to consider when we think about Christian virtue, really how we love God and how we love our neighbor, and think about the importance of contentment in the pursuit of that. First, the love of neighbor. How does satisfaction, how does contentment allow us to uh, fulfill the commands to love our neighbor. Think about the second table of the Ten Commandments, for instance. All of these things that God commands us to do uh, in loving our neighbor. And we see how someone who is content, someone who is satisfied, who has learned, as Paul has, to, to be satisfied with where God has placed them in life, how that kind of a person is going to be able to fulfill the law in a certain kind of sanctified way, right? A content person does not steal. A content person respects the authorities that God has placed over him. And then especially think of the the Tenth Commandment. A content man will not be consumed with thoughts that he wishes his neighbor's possessions were his own. Uh, The Bible tells us to rejoice in the prosperity of our neighbor, and to do so is a sign of being content. You think about the Tenth Commandment, we shall not covet. And you think about, really, if you think about it, you see how vicious that actually is. 
To covet after something is to covet for the very thing that your neighbor owns. You see, they have a, a new car, a fancy new car. And, and coveting is, while perhaps it is sinful to, to envy and to say, man, I really wish I had a new car, to covet is to say, I want that car. I wish that my neighbor didn't have it so that I could have it. That house, that house, I, I deserve that more. I wish that he were not in that house and, and I were. The Christian approach is much different. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Rejoice in the prosperity of your neighbor. Weep with those who weep. Be filled with empathy and sympathy towards each other. Live in harmony with one another. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul says, In the last days, people will be filled with the love of self. The love of self, right? Think about the law of God. What are we to do? We are to love God and we are to love neighbor. Self-love is the number one thing that will disallow you to obey God's law. A peaceful community, a peaceful church, all of these things are impossible with people who are filled with self-love. Self-love breeds discontentment. and Discontentment says God should know better and he should give me the things that I believe he ought to give me. Love of neighbor is thrown off track without a heart that is satisfied in God. Love of God is also thrown well off track by those who have no contentment. You're not satisfied with your lot in life, what do you do? You murmur against God. We saw Israel do this in the wilderness, didn't we? Uh, wandering through the wilderness, constantly grumbling against God. They, call, they were called not to live by bread alone, but by the words that came from the mouth of God. God had saved them. He had brought them out of Egypt from, with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. But instead, uh, they grumbled, they murmured against him. Parents who strive to be faithful, raising their children, they know you can't give something to a, a little kid all the time if he or she wants it exactly when he or she wants it. They have to learn that uh, they're not always exactly going to get what they want when they want it. A good parent is not going to delight in a child's grumbling or murmuring. How much less can God delight in the grumbling and the murmuring of his children? If you murmur at the hand of God, what will you do? If you murmur at the hand of God today, you're going to fret and you're going to worry about tomorrow. If God has not given you what you think you deserve today, then you're going to do nothing but fret and worry about tomorrow. A discontented heart is discouraged when you don't get what you want. Does the, the inability to obtain what you really want, does that crush you? Does that crush you? Or do you thank God for the mystery of providence? Have you, like Paul, learned to thank God in good times and in bad? Have you learned to thank God because, as Romans 8 says, he has promised. He has promised to, at all times and in all ways, do that which is the ultimate best for you. He is bringing about the result of his sovereign decree. Ecclesiastes Chapter 7 says this, In the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. Now this does not mean that uh, sorrow and grief are not okay. Right? We, we value reading the Psalms and singing the Psalms, and it gives us the, the plethora uh, that runs the gamut of human emotions. Sorrow, 
grief, even complaint in a righteous sort of sense. And the language of the Psalms teaches us how to, how to bring those petitions before God. It's not saying that, that when things go in, a, in an awful way, you lose a loved one, something crushes you, that you cannot be filled with sorrow and with grief. Those things are okay, and the scriptures teach us that. But to, to sink in disappointment, to grumble at God, to murmur, to be filled with worry, to forget that he is sovereign, to forget that he is good. All of these are sinful, sinful notions that stem from the lack of contentment that we so often see. One of the, the, the major things that we have to remember, a heart that lacks contentment will often sin in order to get what it wants. Someone will uh, often more quickly commit sin before enduring affliction for a righteous cause. We see this in King Saul in the Old Testament. Saul himself, in 1 Samuel 28, we read that he had, he had put all of the, the occult, dark, dark art magicians and fortune tellers, he had put them out of the land. They're going to battle against the Philistines. Saul wants to know what's going to happen, presumably so that he can sort of change course if it's not going to go well. Goes to the prophets of the Lord. None of them, none of them tell. The Lord doesn't reveal to him what's going to happen. So, what's the first thing that he does? He goes outside to one of those very mediums that he had banished from the land. He says, "Bring up the spirit of Samuel, so that I may know what is going to happen in this battle." Very strange story, mysterious. What exactly is going on there? Perhaps we don't fully know, but. Indeed, that story is given to us as a low point in Saul's kingship. It shows us that he has so lost touch with his God that his first instinct is to sin in order to avoid suffering, in order to avoid affliction. Lack of a contented heart brings that about. The way of faith, the way of satisfaction in God and Christ holds that we would rather endure the greatest suffering and affliction before committing the smallest sin. We would endure the greatest suffering and affliction before committing the smallest sin. Another Puritan, Thomas Manton, was, uh, he expounded on Hebrews 11, which tells us that Moses so valued the, the reproach of Christ, he considered it greater wealth than all of the pleasures of Egypt. Moses had been adopted into the household of Pharaoh. Uh, Egypt was sort of the world power at that time, certainly at least in that part of the world. And he had all that he could have ever wanted. Ultimately, we look at his life, and Hebrew, the writer to the Hebrews says, he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth. Fascinating uh, to think about that that's what he is able to say Moses wanted to endure. It makes us consider our own life. Uh, what would we choose? Would we choose the tiniest sin imaginable? If that tiny, that one tiny sin would bring you, would bring you uh, enormous wealth and material pleasures? Or would we choose the greatest suffering imaginable for rejecting that one tiny sin? Think about how often uh, people will choose the, not, not even just, uh, the, not even just the, the, the smallest sin, but sins even greater that would increase their wealth. And so often they will sin to avoid not the greatest suffering, but the smallest suffering. What do we do when we choose sin instead of suffering and affliction? What happens? Or what does that mean? Think about it in this way. Sin separates us from God, but suffering and affliction does not. 
And therefore, the greatest affliction is to be chosen before the least sin. Affliction brings inconvenience upon the body only and the concerns of the body, but sin brings inconvenience upon the soul. An afflicted state is consistent with being loved by God, right? You can be afflicted, you can be suffering, you can be uh, loved by God. But a sinful state is a sign of God's displeasure. Affliction may be good, but sin is never good. There is nothing that debases a man more than sin. Afflictions come from God. Sin comes from the devil. An afflicted man may die cheerfully, but a man in sin cannot. And then finally, when you deliberately choose sin, it will within a little while bring greater affliction. You consider all these things, and though the world would scoff at such a thing, the contented heart, shaped by Christ, shaped by satisfaction by God, in God, in Christ, that is the kind of heart that would choose the greatest suffering before we walk willfully into the smallest sin. We'll tie all this together with the search for righteousness. Where does all of this come from? Because it can't come from our heart. You hear all of this about contentment and you say, man, uh, the standard is quite lofty. I don't think I can attain that myself. That's right, you can't. You can't. So we'll end this morning with the search for righteousness. What we're talking about here is not some kind of, uh, of, of Zen psychology of a worldly perspective, right? I alluded to, to something in the beginning. Things could be worse. I saw a video this week. It had a, a guy driving in a sports car, sports car. He sees a helicopter fly by. He says, I wish I had a helicopter. A guy in an SUV pulls up to the sports car. He says, man, I wish I had a sports car. A guy in a new sedan pulls up to the SUV. I wish I had an off-road SUV. A guy in an old car pulls up to the new car, says, I wish I had a new car. A guy in a bike pulls up next to the guy in the beater. I wish I had a car. Bus stop sees a guy on the bike. I wish I had a bike. It ends with a guy on a balcony in a, a wheelchair looking at the guy at the bus stop saying, I wish I could get around whenever I wanted to. I wish I could go out and go wherever I wanted, whenever I wanted. That guy is so free to move around with such freedom. Reminding ourselves of that kind of perspective, and then it ends by saying things could be worse, or remember, get, get the right perspective, which is, is a terrible video if you think about it, because what does it say to the person in the last line of that sequence? That's not biblical contentment. That's not Christian contentment. The Christian answer is one that is sufficient for the guy in a wheelchair on the balcony. For he is an image bearer of God. He is created to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Search for righteousness and being satisfied. Think about the words of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says this, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. The word for satisfied is not the same word for contentment, but if you look up in the lexicon, they're going to be right next to each other. They're very close synonyms. It highlights the, the, the same idea. It's saying that contentment, satisfaction, will come to those who seek after righteousness. Why? Because to possess righteousness is to be able to live in fellowship with God, with your Creator. It is to be able to live the way in which you were created to live. So here is the question to ask. Do you hunger and do you thirst after righteousness? Do you hunger and do you thirst after righteousness? Two ways to think about that. The first builds, uh, and the second builds off the first. The first is the first step. 
and the second comes after. The first is whether or not you have sought after righteousness in Christ for your salvation. You think about the law of God, you can't keep it. You need a savior. You need someone to cover you. You need someone to speak for you. You need someone to to mediate for you, to stand before God and to represent you. Have you sought after righteousness in Christ for your salvation? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Outside of Christ, it's nothing but, but condemnation. You cannot fulfill the law You cannot fulfill righteousness. You cannot fulfill your God-ordained purpose on your own. Have you sought salvation in Christ? And have you sought the righteousness that comes by faith in him? The second builds off the first. The second way to seek after righteousness is to seek after the righteousness that does not save us, but that God gives to us by his spirit, by his grace, in sanctification. This This is not a saving righteousness. The, the, the righteousness that we gain, the, the righteousness that we learn, that as, for instance, Paul learned, he learned contentment. Paul's contentment, his growth in contentment didn't save him. Christ saved him. It's not a saving righteousness, but it is the joyful fellowship lived out by the one who is in Christ Jesus. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 says that Christ has become to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. In the face of the daunting task of learning godliness, in the face of our flesh that so often pulls us in the direction of a discontent heart, being dissatisfied with our lot in life, what we need is the power of the joy of union with Christ. Paul said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Paul knew that in his flesh he could never learn to be content. He knew that he could never do it in his flesh. In our flesh we are the same. But in Christ, by the power of the Spirit, By the grace of God, by the means of grace, God will sanctify you. He will bring all of these things to you. But God does not tell us just to to get a a proper perspective so that you can feel like your life is better than the guy in the balcony. Because at some point, you're going to feel like the guy in the balcony looking down at the person on the bus stop. It's the reality of this life. It's the reality of our fallen world. And our answer has to be better. He tells us, remember that as my people, I have already given you all things in Christ. I've given you all things in Christ. The sufferings of this life might be difficult, but I ask you to go through them as a mystery of my providence and to bring you forth as gold. He says, rest in me, trust in me, live for me always. But now, even now, you have all that you need in Christ. You have all that you need in Christ. I'd like to close by reading this passage from Ephesians 1. The heavenly perspective that brings Christian, godly, gospel-centered, Christ-saturated contentment. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption into the family as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption. Notice how Paul is going to keep telling us things that we have. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace 
which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Seek the righteousness found in Christ for your salvation. Seek the righteousness infused in you by the power of the Spirit in your sanctification. Not the righteousness that saves you, the righteousness that brings you into joyful fellowship with your God. Remember the blessings that you have. He has given you all things in his Son. He has made you an heir in Jesus Christ by faith. Let that bring about a heavenly mindedness with a biblical contentment. And let that give shape to your Christian thanksgiving today and every day which the Lord your God gives to you. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we give you all thanks and praise and adoration. We're thankful that you have given us this time to give you our first and our best. You are worthy. You are worthy of so much more than we give to you. Father, we are so unworthy of your blessings. And so we thank you. May you give us, may you give us, may you teach us how to be content, how to be satisfied, the righteousness found in Christ, the righteousness that you give to us by your spirit as we walk with you, for you, all of our days. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. And we will sing both verses of number 125.